Hello and welcome to the Film Score Junkie podcast, once again with me, Charlie Nelson. And uh, in this episode, I have with me broadcaster and film music expert, Tommy Pearson. Over the past 25 years, Tommy has made his name as a presenter of numerous music-related programmes on radio and TV. And with his company, Big Screen Live, he has worked on many live-to-film projects. And uh, in March of next year, his latest project, Scott of the Antarctic in Concert, will be premiered at the Barbican in London by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Martin Brabins. Now, before I before I ask Tommy any questions, I should like to point out I should like to point out that we are both on Zoom, and until now, I have recorded podcasts in person. So I'd like to apologise in advance for any potential issues uh, with the sound quality. Okay, so Tommy, this is um, uh, this is a, a bit of a, a simple question, I think. Um, how did you get interested in film music? Goodness, I don't think there's ever been a time where I haven't been interested in film music. I mean, I've been doing music since almost when I was born um, and have always been surrounded by it. And I suppose when I was little and I started going to films, going to see films in the cinema, it was just that natural thing. You know, I was always going to notice the music perhaps more because I was already involved in music. I mean, my first Everyone of my age, I think, probably has this, but my first um, memory of going to the cinema is Star Wars in 1977. And uh, that was a very, uh, in, well, it was an incredible thing to do, but I don't really remember much about the film at that, uh, you know, obviously going to, I, I remember everything about the film now, of course, but I don't remember anything about the film at the time. I just remember that we went. The film that I can remember well going to see first was um, Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979. I can remember us queuing up outside in the rain because uh, that's what you had to do in those days, mm. queue up to get in. You, it wasn't it wasn't certain you were even going to get in. I got in and I just remember being bowled over by that amazing music by Jerry Goldsmith in that film. Although I did, like many people, it turns out, fall asleep in that film. Um, I mean, I was only about eight or nine at the time anyway, but uh, lots of people fell asleep in that film because of course famously known as uh, the motionless picture because not very much happens in it, but it does have this amazing score and it, that certainly um, made an impression on me. And then I, I think as I got older, um, I just became more and more interested in the sounds that were coming out of those speakers when I went to see films, because I love films and I used to go see films all the time. Um, and then when, CDs really started to come out because I had I had a lot of LPs by that point that I, I was mm -hmm. buying with my pocket money but uh, when CDs first started coming out in the kind of mid 80s I remember there was a WH Smith's in Maidstone which is where I grew up in Kent and they had this tiny little rack I mean you'd never believe it now I, I don't think they were selling more than maybe 50 CDs they had available at that point <laughs> amazing and uh, uh, one of the CDs was called movie music with the London Symphony Orchestra conducted by Stanley Black who was a brilliant orchestrator and arranger and on that were all the big hits you know like Lawrence of Arabia, Star Wars, Raiders of the Lost Ark, things like that and it finished with this amazing um, James Bond suite it had a, a number of the of the mm. hit songs in it brilliantly uh, uh, played 
and brilliantly arranged and that I loved that so that was a really early CD because of course half the pleasure of getting a CD in those days was listening to the quality of the sound not just the music that was being played but that was my very first CD I've got um, I don't know nearly 9,000 now that was my first one Mm -hmm. so uh, (laughs) that was quite a significant thing that it was it was film music it just kind of went from there really and then when when I when I was 21 I started at BBC Radio 3 and um, I was always banging on about film music. And you have to remember that, and this was in the early 90s, no one was talking about film music, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody talks about film music now. Film music is mentioned in almost every review of a critic now, because all critics have suddenly become experts at film music as well. It wasn't really being performed that much on stage in concerts, and it was, certainly wasn't being played on radio. Uh, and every now and then I could slip some film music in. I was doing a show called Music Machine on Radio 3, which ah. is a, a programme five days a week for young people. And we were able to do, we cover every kind of music possible. And um, genres, of course, was film music. I'd slip it in. Then I, I banged on about it for so long at the BBC that eventually they gave me my own show in 2001 we did a program called Stage and Screen, and that was great. So I went off to Los Angeles and we did lots of interviews there with lots of very, very big time composers. Um, and that was that was our job for the next few years after that. And it all started to kind of get bigger and bigger and bigger. The natural progression of that is essentially what I'm doing now. Well, with that um, answer you've just given me, there are a few points that... Um, few interesting points there the um scott of the antarctic that you're going to be doing i actually i actually Mm. have the full score of that from oxford university press and for some Mm -hmm. time i thought that would be great done live and and then i suddenly i just one day i thought about it and then i went onto facebook or onto twitter and it came up it's i I just went speak of the (laughs) devil and it was you saying that that was the next that was the next, and of course, I mean, in some ways, it is a no-brainer to do because it's. I mean, next year you, we've got the okay. It was going to happen this year, but it was cancelled because of COVID. And next year we've got the Vaughan Williams 150th anniversary. Um, so that's one reason to do it. The other reason is, of course, it's a, it's one of this country's greatest movies. Mm-hmm. It's in it's in it's in Technicolor. Um, it stars John Mills. And of course, the score is by Vaughan Williams, one of this country's greatest composers. The project's actually been in planning for quite some time. Um, About three or four years ago, I think it might have even been, Martin Brabins called me up and said, um, think about the idea of doing the Scott of the Antarctic score, but live, because he knew that's what I was doing. Um, I've known Martin since I was a teenager because he came and conducted our youth orchestra. Uh, many many years ago uh, 33 years ago in fact and so I've known him a long time and uh, liked him very much and worked with him many many times since and uh, so I thought that was a terrific idea he's in he was in the middle of a uh, Vaughan Williams symphony cycle so it made kind of sense because he knows the music at least uh, as it's presented in the symphony uh, and thought it might be quite fun and he'd never done a live uh, synchronized film score before although I was talking to him yesterday he did do Alexander Nevsky Prokofiev's um, score mm. to that film um, although it's slightly different in the way that it's constructed but mm. um, 
when he's when he suggested it, I thought, yeah, actually, you're right. It's a it's a no brainer in a way. It's a beautiful score, wonderful score, famous score, and it's mm. a terrific movie. However, it's an old movie. It's 1940s. I needed to see it again. And what I uh, what was exciting was when I got in touch with the studio, which is Studio Canal, to uh, to find out whether we could actually have permission to do it, which is what you have to do. Um, they were just about to release the movie on Blu-ray as a complete remaster. Mm. And what was really interesting about watching that Blu-ray was that there's a, there's a documentary in it where they show the processes, the film processes they went through in order to make the picture look good because it's extraordinary what they've done. When you watch it, it looks like it was made yesterday. It's, it's an incredible thing. Um, and so what I did was I was watching the he did all the technical side of it. So I noted his name and I rang Pinewood and I said, can I be put through to this guy? And they put me through to him and I talked to him about it and about the technical side because I needed to find out whether the sound sources for the movie were separate. So because movies have separate um, audio stems, hmm. dialogue, effects and music. Generally speaking, it's just, you know, those are the basics of it anyway. And um, of course, this film doesn't have separate sound stems because it's made in 1948. Uh, it's in mono and everything's on the same strip. Mm. So uh, I needed to find that stuff out before I could decide whether this was actually something worth doing. Because the problem with that is I have to remove the music from the soundtrack because we're playing it live. We don't want to be able to hear it on the soundtrack and play it live. Mm. That would be weird. So we have to remove it. And because of this, uh, because it's not on a separate audio track, you have to get a company to remove it. So yep. that's what I then did. But I went to the um, Williams Trust, Charitable Trust, uh, and pitched it to them. And they were very, very interested. And they funded, uh, part funded that um, process, which is amazing to have that support. And we were on our way then. So we got the permission to do it and we were on our way. That's great. So I, I, I can't wait to um, let's hope I can go to London then to um, see it. And, um, and so now to no, move on to. Yeah. Yeah. To to um, uh, to move on to the. Uh, yeah. To move on to the next question. First of all, I'm going to slip in another question that I've just come up with. OK, I'm not sure this is a question, but you mentioned earlier on, you mentioned two composers and arrangers people one of them okay i'm not sure people have, have completely forgotten about that was jerry goldsmith although i think people are starting to uh, have kind of forgotten about goldsmith he, he did an awful lot of films when he was alive he was like up there with john williams but now that he's sadly no longer with us he's i think people have forgotten how such a versatile composer that he was and i think they'll they'll know his scores even if they don't know the name they'll know chinatown they'll know Patton, they'll know star trek papillon and many others uh, that he did and also the other guy stanley black um stanley mm -hmm. black i first saw the name on the of various old comedies of the late 50s british comedies and mm -hmm. And, th and then I did some more research and found out that he was a, that he was an arranger. I was actually at the proms uh, several months ago and at the Broadway prom uh, that I went to. Um, some of the arrangements there were by Stanley. And also, yeah. also the film music one that Bram Tovey did with the BBC CO 
um, the Bridge on the River Kwai again was an arrangement by Stanley. Can I pick? Can I? Can I pick you up on what you said about Jerry Goldsmith, though, Charlie? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly. I I can't let I can't let that go. Uh, I think it depends. Uh, you you say people are forgetting about him. I I think it depends on who you mean by people. Let's remember that there's a very small number of people like us in the world who who are interested in composers themselves uh, as opposed to just their music most people of yeah. course just consume this music through the movies and that's the important bit um so uh, in a way i don't think it matters one way or the other him as such and we're always going to remember him i mean he's one of the greatest film composers in history there's no question about that yeah. and uh, um easily the most versatile I think. Um, and what I love about Jerry's music is that every single score he did, even when he was sometimes, particularly in later years, rather um, drawing on, on previous scores of his own, mm. um, he always did something interesting. He was never dull. Um, it, there was always something interesting, something that made your ears prick up. And I think that was, um, you know, his real talent was, yeah, I mean, he was just phenomenal composer yeah. very very I mean, anything always always served the film oh, um, so I, he'll never go yeah. away i mean you know john williams is always going to be the most prominent because he's the most popular he's done the most popular movies uh, and his music is performed all over the world all the time he's one of the most performed composers in the world and he's also still with us so of course yeah. that's going to be the case but jerry's music will live long and uh you know it it because it's of the highest possible quality um yeah uh, jerry uh, jerry goldsmith um you mentioned he used some stuff again so that he could like get the juice out of it and i don't think there's anything wrong with that i mean i think that the scores are still great even if he recycled bits uh i recently um i've been listening to i've been I, i've been doing i've been listening to some goldsmiths um over the past few days i've been watching papillon and listening to the music in that the bit where the bit where steve mcqueen and the other guy are running through the jungle the piano on that, where the I think the piano part on that is like tuned a quarter tone or a semitone lower, so the bass notes sound really low, and mm. and I heard something similar to that in Planet of the Apes, where there's a chase scene where Charlton Heston's being chased by the apes and he's running away, and um, the other the other scores, the theme from Papillon that accordion theme that theme that's played on the accordion i recently heard a score that jerry did in the 80s called night crossing except um that's in a more major key it's still played on an accordion and it's in three quarter time so it's still a waltz but it but as it was as he was score as night crossing is a disney film it's obviously got to be more upbeat well but planet of the of my all-time favorites is definitely in my top three film scores of all time and i did it we did it live at the raw mm. festival hall with the bbc concert orchestra a few years ago and that was an amazing experience because that's it's a hard score it's it's you know it's 12 tone score it's got no rose it's got interesting sounds in it none of them are electronic everyone uh, people often think there's electronics in it and it's not that pure imagination of of, of use of instruments and stuff in that but that is an incredible his master, one of his masterpieces I and mean, he did a few I think that's definitely one of them and I love the story that um, he and uh, Schaffner the 
director went to lunch to talk about the score and Jerry said to to Shafton said oh I'm, I'm thinking of doing a 12 tone movie and Shafton said great see you at the soundstage and the great thing about that that story of course is that that would never ever happen now there's mm. there's no that that is the pure trust thing that's the that that amazing uh, trust between a director and a composer that you know has been at the heart of some of the greatest films and film scores we've ever seen yeah. but i love that idea that he could just say okay fine you go away and directors trust you. you know it's i think directors are getting i think are getting more as time goes by i think they're getting more pernickety about how their music should sound because they're probably getting they're knowing about it they're learning about it more and more from the films they grew up with but the thing, they want their films to be modern they're worried about melody they're probably worried about certain chords when i was talking to neil brand uh, a couple of uh, a month a month or so ago I told him this story that Mark Shaman told. Mark Shaman, who scored Mary Poppins Returns and A Few Good Men and numerous others. He liked the Mary Poppins overture from the 60s so much. The F major chord that starts the overture on tremolo strings. He liked that one chord so much. Whenever he was asked to score a film, when he tried to put that chord into the score, when the director heard him do that, they would always say to him, why are you scoring my movie as if you're scoring Mary Poppins? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Mark, Mark is a great um, uh, list in, I mean, not he, he hasn't just, written one of the all-time great modern musicals hairspray but he's also a great student of of musicals and mm. and film musicals of course so that's pure mark really that he would want to draw uh, that had so much of an effect on his life you know earlier earlier on as well i mean he's a brilliant composer i i should say that um Mark and I are working on something at the moment, but I can't tell you what it is. All right, <laughs> I'll, I'll 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 see what it is when it uh, comes out. Then, as someone who's about to go to university, I am interested in how your education and whether that had a significant impact on what you are doing now. So, did it have a, an impact on what you're doing right now? I guess it did because you've mentioned you it earlier on. I think. Do you mean school or music? Well, school, universe, the, the, your musical education and probably mm. your education as, because you're also a filmmaker and a broadcaster as well as a, a, mm. a, an expert in music. Well, um, look, I think uh, it's it's a tricky one. Everyone always asks me about this. And uh, it, I, I, it was a, it's a bit of a disaster area, me talking about it. Uh, I was one of those people, I was completely and utterly focused on one thing and that was music all the way through school. And I couldn't wait to leave school in order to pursue a career in music. And in fact, I left so I could do that. I did my A-levels in a year uh, because I got a composer at the Royal Academy of Music. So I went to the Academy a year early um, when I was seven, uh, although I'm, I'm very early September birthday. So I was just 18, in fact, when, we, when I got there. And, um, I spent a year there I only I was only there a year and then I left it didn't really suit me at all uh and I think I probably should have known that at the beginning but I wasn't really very good at, at educational establishments put it that way I mean I, the thing is in context though I was incredibly lucky because I got the best possible education in 
everything in life and in music through the Kent Music School, uh, which was uh, huge in the 80s when I was there. Um, it, it was at a real peak with a huge number of students, all learning music. Very uh, high quality youth orchestra, of which I was a member. Um, and I was given so many opportunities as a composer, as a teenage composer, to write music for, for the various county groups uh, who all played my music uh, and I conducted as well. So in a way, education was that. Um, and of course, most of that does, very sad to see, but uh, a lot of the music education that we benefited from, and by the way, benefited from mostly for free, uh, doesn't exist anymore. Um, so I think that was probably my best education. Um, I'm, I'm a relatively so, I want to learn something, I want to do, I sort of go off and learn how to do it. Um, and uh, so I was in uh, very interested from, probably from the age of about five, of being a broker. I was always having that running along in my brain as well at the same time. And those two things then collided, essentially, when I was 20, 21, uh, when I wrote to Radio 3, BBC Radio 3, and said, look, I think you should do a young people's programme, and I think you should get me to present it, which is essentially what happened. Um, and that kind of thing could happen in those days. It was very exciting. So um, that, that's how it all happened. But all of that life experience, and particularly with the youth orchestra, where, I mean, every single um, holiday, Christmas, Easter and summer, I would be away on either a residential course, music course with the orchestra, or I would be on tour. And some of our tours were long. I mean, summer, summer tour, Canada, I remember doing in 1986, that was three and a half weeks. Uh, and by the way, no mobile phones or anything, of course. So it was brilliant. We didn't speak to our parents for like a month. It was amazing. Wow. Um, it's, it's slightly different now, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So we had these incredible experiences, all of us together. And it, it meant, because um, we all grew up together in this, it means that we're all really, really good friends now because we share something very special, which was that experience. Hmm. So all of that was has fed into everything that I do. That to me was my was the best education. I mean, I went to a really, really good state grammar school in Maidstone, very, very good school with a big music department. So I had a lot of opportunities there. I didn't really take all of those opportunities that I was given at school beyond music because I was just focused on that one thing. And I regret that uh, to a degree. But, you know, things kind of worked out. I mean, I've had a I've had a so-called career uh, where I've where I've flitted from one thing to another. But I'm not I'm usually not the person to talk to about <laughs> about education. I did an interview with The Guardian once when I was at the BBC and it was a special column all about my education. And it was basically about how I'd failed in almost every respect in that. It was a very strange one to do. Mm. And um, uh, it's funny because my uh, musical education, um, I'm still learning now. I'm going to study music properly at university in September. Uh, I've got several options lined up because I'm doing it through UCAS, but that's another story. But anyway, the musical education I've had is one of, is it one of twists and turns? I don't, I don't know. But I was, when I was at primary school, they tried to, they really wanted, wanted to get us to learn instruments. There were guys who learned guitars, there were guys who learned pianos. I think there were some drummers. And I chose to learn tenor horn 
but I didn't practice because I was because I was addicted to watching the telly, and that's a problem <laughs> I still have. I st I still have now. Um, but the I guess I still think though that there were things that I was watching on the telly that must have been an inspiration to me musically. I mean, Thunderbirds and whatnot. With which which had great scores, and it all um, filters it all filters in. I mean, I you know some of the earliest music I remember watching on television is was by the great Ronnie Hazelhurst, who yeah. did all those comedies. And I was Two allowed Ronnies. to I was allowed to stay up a little bit uh, later for various comedies in the seventies. Um, one of which was Butterflies, which was a Dolly Parton song they used actually, but it was arranged by. Ronnie Hazelhurst, and I remember his name because his name was at the end of all these programs. So I'd see his name and go, uh, wow, I wonder who this Ronnie Hazelhurst is. Um, so, uh, and that all filters through as well because it's just stuff you're, you're absorbing. Mm. I mean, one of the things, one of the, I think that's one of the great things about now with, with so many different sources of music that you can get, you know, whether it be Spotify, television, film, whatever it is, there's so much to absorb. And I think it's great. You just absorb it because you never quite know how it's going to come back out again mm. um it might be years and years before you realize that something you're doing has has a connection with something you watched when you were seven but i that's the beauty of it yeah the um i've when i watched thunderbirds i just heard so much in that there was something about barry gray scores barry gray i think for me I'm not sure if you'll know who I'm talking about. You might know one of them. For me, he was he was John Addison and Walter Scharf rolled into one. I didn't know about Walter. Walter Scharf was a name. I I've only I've only recently done research about him and found out what a, what a, an amazing guy he was. But the name Walter Scharf certainly his ability as an arranger and as a composer has stuck with me for years. The film I grew up with watching Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I still watch it now. I've recently bought the newly restored version, and I kept seeing the name Walter Scharf on the credits. And hearing like the bit where the incidental bits of music where Charlie is like doing his paper round. And, and of course, there's the bit where he's got the golden ticket and he's running home and he's confronted by Slugworth in the underpass. Uh, but a, a number of those incidental pieces are not on the CD. So I just had to try and listen very carefully. But Barry, Barry Gray, he was he he had the orchestration techniques of Walter Scharf and all that those wonderful harmonies that Walter Scharf used. And that so he had so every so it was all you could hear it crystal clear. And when it and when it comes to him sounding like John Addison, when I mean John, he sounded like John Ad John Addison. He was whimsical. He could do. He could come up with all kinds of whimsical tunes that would stick with you. Pretty, they would just stick in the mind, pretty much like that. I'm I, I'm impressed that you watch uh, Thunderbirds. So because I I missed Thunderbirds because they were, I was a little bit too young to catch Thunderbirds properly um, when they first came out. Um, I'm, I'm just I think I'm about 12 years too late for that uh, in generational terms 
but uh, I have a I am I'm looking I can see it here now I've got the box set uh, of the complete series because a friend of mine bought it for my twin boys because I mean they're only two right now so they're not quite at Thunderbird stage yet um they're much more at uh, hey dougie and uh, pepper pig and stuff but they will get to thunderbirds and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that but how wonderful it is that something like thunderbirds is still being watched by young people i mean you, you know you're very young and 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 it's you know it's been over 50 years since it was made so i, th- I think that's fantastic it's still being enjoyed yeah and but barry yeah and the scores i Thunderbirds, I mean, it introduced me to the whole Jerry Anderson franchise. Mm. And Barry Gray scored pretty much everything that Jerry Anderson made. Yeah. Uh, although I think the only thing that he didn't really score was the second series of Space, 19, Space 1999, but the majority of things he scored. And I remember watching my dad putting Thunderbirds on... He bought, this was in like the early 2000s and we didn't have many DVDs in the house because we were still watching things on VHS. But anyway, he bought me DVD set of Thunderbirds and he put it on the DVD player and um, just as we pressed play and I immediately I heard the, I, I, the, the five, four, three, two, mm-hmm. one just made me jump. <laughs> I mean, it didn't, okay, I'm not sure if it freaked me out, but it, it certainly it certainly stuck with me. And I just kept repeating it to myself over and over again in mm. my head. And then the opening title music, and then you get to the bit when the power station blows up. And I thought, how's this possible? <laughs> and I just kept, so I, I just watched loads and loads of episodes and I just eventually started to think, how's Barry Gray creating that phenomenal shimmer every time you see the hood or every time his eyes light up so that he hypnotizes people? That, that I haven't heard any other composer do any n- none of the none of the film composers out there all the composers except for him haven't managed to nail it <laughs> okay I'll take your word for it <laughs> and, and of course the same applies to um, similar things apply to John Addison of course Walter Scharf Richard Rodney Bennett mm-hmm. Richard Rodney Bennett he I've I've been I've been on, I've been on Spotify and I've been listening again and again and again to his Murder on the Orient Express, Billion Dollar Brain, and not just those, his his arrangements of Jerome Kern songs, the use of instruments like the flute, uh, the horns, and of course in Murder on the Orient Express, the strings. When you get that at the start of the film, the flashback to the kidnapping and the murder of Daisy, and and you get the dee dum ba dum ba, and and then suddenly you get the horns and the tubular bells going ba bum, at, at 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 not at regular intervals, but it's infrequent every time that the headlines flash upon the screen. Yeah, I, I knew Richard, and uh, one of the big uh, regrets, I think, really, is that he didn't do more movies. Um, mm. There's a number of reasons why he didn't really do do more, but he because he was one of those composers that could do anything. He, he had the most extraordinarily natural facility, 
and he could write in any style. So of course that meant he was a perfect film composer in that respect. I think he had his fingers burned a little bit on a couple of projects. And also, of course, he was very successful as a concert composer and that took mm. up most of his time. And then, and then obviously as, as well as a jazz pianist uh, as well. So he did a lot of things. Uh, I just wish he'd done more big film scores. I mean, there, there's Fanny Alexander's big score. There's, there's quite a lot of, of, of stuff out there to discover of his but I, I wish he'd done more because he he was every bit as good a composer as anybody uh working and um i think could have been one of the all-time greats he just didn't do very much of it that's all mm. perhaps um uh, murder on the orient express might be a good film concert because that's one i've had in my head for some time well the the, the problem with it with all of these is a lot of these are sound great to do and everybody loves the music but there's there's a couple of things you need to remember i mean mm. my first my first uh, thought about doing murder on the orient express is a most people don't really know the music and b uh most people probably don't care enough about the film to go and pay money to see it you have to remember there's a big difference between sticking it on the television and watching it and paying 35 pounds to 65 pounds to go and watch it on a big screen most people who go to live film concerts are going for the film more than the music. I, we know that sort of anecdotally really in the people that we've spoken to and, and the trends we've seen when we've put these concerts on. And I'm, I'm often uh, asked on various specialist film music forums, why aren't we doing this piece? Why aren't we doing this bizarrely obscure but also utter masterpiece by Jerry Goldsmith? Well, the answer is, no one would go. Hmm. And they would then say, but we'll go. And you think, well, that's the first row of the seats then. Hmm. But in order to do it, these are incredibly expensive projects to do. Hmm. Really, really expensive. Hmm. So if somebody wants to pay for it, great. But of course, that, that doesn't really happen. You have to raise the money or you have to find someone to, to, to pay for it. Um, so those are the things that go through my mind when someone says, why don't you do such and such a film? It may well have a great score. And I would agree that it had a great score. But the only question really worth asking when it comes to this kind of presentation, which is a business, is will people come and see it? And you would be amazed. I mean, look, you know, Harry Potter is always going to sell well. Hmm. Star Wars is always going to sell well. The John Williams ones are going to sell well. But E.T. really struggled. So uh, I think the Albert Hall were going to do like four performances of E.T. and only ended up doing two or, or it was something like that anyway they certainly did fewer than they were going to because it didn't sell anything like as much as star wars or harry potter or the rest of it now that's amazing really when you think about it since et is one of the great films of all time and certainly for me i think it's the greatest film score ever written but uh when you think about it et was massive for a certain uh, audience at a certain point i mean a huge audience it made a lot of money but it was it, then it was gone. So I remember it. I was, what, 10 or 11 when it came out. So I was the I was almost the perfect kind of age for the film. But um, once it's gone, it's gone. It's taken over by another film and another film and then another film becomes yeah. the, the, the zeitgeist. And what you need, what you were trying to do with these films is to get as bigger audience and as broader audience as you can. And I thought that was really interesting. So Raiders of the Lost Ark will sell really well, but E.T. won't. I, mm. I thought that was very, very, very interesting. It's, I can't quite put my finger on why, but that, my theory is 
that it's a generational thing mm. that it hasn't hasn't lasted generationally as good as something like Raiders of the Lost Ark yes um well the I think the problem is and this is always this is the nature of the beast I think when it comes to big budget filmmaking it's I think although I think with any kind of filmmaking if if it's a, like a director or a producer who wants to make loads of films when possible, it's just a case basically of film it, sell it, move on. Well, I, I, I don't think that's anything to do with why they, why, why it didn't sell as well, though. I think it's mm. far more about the fact that so, for some people of a certain age, E.T. meant an enormous amount to them because it caught them yeah. at exactly that moment. But for everyone else, it was just another movie. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I did the piano. We, we, we're still doing the, the piano, uh, Jane Campion's movie, uh, mm. the, the piano, uh, with music by Michael Nyman. And that was an interesting one because, you know, that, the piano is not exactly a laugh a minute. It's not a, it's, it's not a mass audience film, although it was successful. Um, it's a very particular kind of film for a particular kind of audience. But that audience, I, I like. I, I think needs to be served uh, in this mm. case. You know, not everything is Harry Potter. So this is much more of a grown up audience, if you like. Um, so it was a risk to do it, but the music was so popular when it came out and continues to be incredibly popular as a film score that it was one of the very few projects I've done where actually I think the, the music was more popular than the film. So people were genuinely, I think, coming to see it for the music as, as, as well as the film. Whereas, you know, with, with a lot of them, they're coming to see the film and the fact they've got a, a live orchestra there is a real bonus. Hmm. Um, I think one where it was a bit of a balance between the two was when I did Interstellar with Hans Zimmer at the Royal Albert Hall, um, because that was very new. That had only just come out when we actually did it live. So it was still in the air. People knew all about it. It had become very, very successful. But also Hans Zimmer is a huge star. So you put him on the stage, uh, people are going to come. So it was properly the mix, actually, of the two, I think. It was the film that was very popular uh, and it was the music that was being driven by this ex extraordinary composer, Hans Zimmer. And so I think in the audience, maybe we had like 50-50 of people who were interested in the film, people interested in the music. And it was a very, very special event. Blew the roof off. Honestly, everyone who was there at that performance, I think we'll never forget it. It was an extraordinary evening. Uh, I threw everything at it. I got, you know, Stephen Hawking to introduce it. Uh, Michael Caine came because I'd, I'd done something with Michael Caine at the Albert Hall as well. And he was a good friend and he came and introduced the performance uh, before we started. And Hans obviously was on stage and we, we, it, we it was amazing. The whole night was ex extraordinary. Uh, and as I say, it blew the roof off. I think it's probably the loudest thing that's ever happened in that hall. And that includes Led Zeppelin in 1970, so. Wow. <laughs> I am, um, uh, another film concert you have done, I have, I've seen this done live. Um, there was um, Brassed Off. Yeah. I saw Ben Palmer do that in Birmingham. And I actually, in my previous podcast with him, I actually said, surely it must have been really nerve wracking or, or difficult in some ways because you are you are conducting an ensemble, a brass band that's not a conventional orchestra and possibly has amateur players playing in it. And but uh, but the, the thing was that 
the thing about getting the Grimethorpe band to do it, of course, is they know the pieces. And of course, that the arrangements that that were done live were the arrangements that they recorded for the film. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I did all of that. So um, the, uh, the, the first thing to say is there's nothing amateur about the Grimethorpe band. They are a phenomenal group of musicians and uh, really hardworking. And in fact, when we did the premiere of it at the Royal Albert Hall, which Ludwig Vicky uh, conducted, um, they, I was so impressed with their work ethic. They, they turned up early. They were ready to go about 10 minutes before the rehearsal started. Slightly embarrassing, actually. We were sort of sitting there thinking, well, what are we going to do now for 10 minutes? But they were ready to go. And then they, they went through. They didn't take a break. They, they gave everything at every moment of that rehearsal. And it was fantastic. It was amazing to watch. And my God, that sound of that band, you know, at full throttle. And particularly in a piece like Danny Boy, um, which is at a really wonderful moment in that film, of course. And in the rehearsal, they did it. I mean, guy really gets right into you. Amazing. You know, I, when I was working on that film, because I did all of the, um, the, the click track and, and synchronizations and everything, the preparation for that, um, I must have watched it maybe 130, 140 times. And every single time, Pete Postlethwaite's speech at the end, where he at first refuses the award, because he makes a statement about the government of the time, the Thatcher government at the time and the minor strike. It gets me every, it got me every single time, every single time. And what was wonderful about that premiere at the end, uh, Pete Postlethwaite's wife was there and, oh. and children. And so I was able to tell her that, that what that film had meant to me and what his performance, which I think is, I think it's his greatest performance actually, um, had, had, had meant to me. And that was a real privilege. Uh, all the actors were there, all the, all the main principal actors were there except Ewan McGregor. Um, and so it was wonderful to work with them and uh, meet them and uh, for them to experience the, that, that music live as well. It was an incredibly emotional night for them because what's wonderful about Brass Doff is that it, me it meant a lot to all the filmmakers. Mark Herman, who wrote it and directed it, and everybody involved in it, it meant so much to them that actually coming back to the film again was really quite an emotional experience for them. It was very emotional for me too. I loved, I mean, I know every frame of that film before we started, uh, which is why I agreed to do it. And then, uh, and then afterwards, of course, I knew every single tiny little detail. The really big challenge of it was when you're setting the um, click track is that all the performances on the movie weren't done in, with click track. So even though it sounds like it's in time, it actually often isn't. And it fluctuates, this tempo fluctuates often in, in one bar. And of course you have, to, uh, you have to reflect that in the click track to make it synchronized. The problem with Brastoff is that you're watching them playing as much as hearing them. So most film scores, of course, you don't see the orchestra in the frame, right? You only hear them. Whereas here, we're watching them as well. So that makes the challenge even greater. So when they're doing the Concerto de Orange Juice mm -hmm. um, uh, with the solo um, flugelhorn, which Tara Fitzgerald plays, what, they're, what we're playing live has to synchronize exactly with that. Otherwise, you lose people's interest in the film. It has to be exact. And that was really, really hard work because they obviously did it kind of live on the track um, and with all of that that goes with it. You know, we're all human beings. No one really plays to, plays to a click track in real life. Um, so that was hard. So it was like working backwards. Uh, and Dudley had this when she was 
doing the music for Les Miserables, Tom Hooper's movie Les Miserables, because they famously performed the music live on the on the soundstage, which, you know, in musicals, they never do. They always lip sync to the recording they've already done. But with Les Miserables, to get the proper acting chops around the music, they actually performed it, as it were, live, you know, um, with the cameras on. Um, that meant that when you were putting the orchestra onto it, because the actors only sang to a piano accompaniment, the, that meant that Anne Dudley had to work backwards. She's basically having to put a click track onto something that's already happened. And that's incredibly hard work and extremely frustrating. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a different way of doing it, but it's, it's, it's not to be recommended. Mm, they, there was, it reminds me of the story that uh, I heard John Wilson telling when um, when uh, Rex Harrison was making My Fair Lady, he refused, because he had done it on stage, he refused mm. to record, to pre-record his songs. So what eventually the producers and the directors conceded and they went back to 1927 they hid a radio microphone in his tie which is why he's got this this huge knot mm. in his tie mm. and like whenever he was like singing like i've got a, i've grown accustomed to a face or whatever like they would always have the receiver like underneath the bench he was sitting on or in a mm. in a lamp post and andre previn the musical director would be quietly playing the piano in the background so that he kept in time so that they could like dub the orchestra track on afterwards mm -hmm. yeah 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 it's a tricky way of doing it though I hear you are working on this new uh, John Barry uh, album. Yeah, with uh, the City Light Symphony Orchestra in Lucerne. They're great friends of mine. Uh, I've done a number of projects in the KKL, which is the beautiful concert hall uh, by the lake in, um, in Lucerne. And uh, the guy that runs the City Light Symphony, Pierre Min, is a good friend of mine. And we've worked together on lots of things. And... Um, we thought we would, well, it actually all started with something else entirely uh, John Barry related, which uh, I, I can't really talk about at the moment, but it came out of that came the idea that maybe we should uh, do an album of John Barry's music. Um, it was mostly out of a discussion that I had with Laurie Barry, John Barry's wife, because um, we were talking about the, the music. I mean, some, a lot of the stuff that, that, that John, John, she has a whole vault full of John's original music, of course which is heading to, uh, I think it's the Library of Congress, somewhere like that, very, very soon uh, to be stored and to look, be looked after so that it can be studied by, by people. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of his music is out there and uh, people have done a lot of arrangements and people who worked with him, people like Nick, Nick Rain have done a lot, of, a lot of arrangements so that it can be performed in concert. So we just decided that we would get a big collection of that music together and record it uh, because of lockdown. There wasn't anything happening in the KKL concert hall, so it was available for recordings, which is great because it's got a wonderful natural acoustic, so you don't have to go into a recording studio. And so they did that, and they went in, and we, we you know, we planned it, and we, well, we, what we also did, um, what I did for months and months was to uh, prepare all the music because most of it was handwritten. So I was putting it all into Dorico, which I use, yeah, and I um, and it, uh, and so it all looks nice. And I work with um, a, a copyist who also works for Dorico called Lily Harris, who's also a brilliant composer. 
and she's kind of my partner in in this she she i, I put it all in and she makes it look nice uh that's that's how it works because <laughs> she knows her way around dorico like nobody else and i'm, I'm i don't but uh so that, that's that was fascinating because of course that that gets you inside the music i get the i get the manuscripts the original manuscripts mm. and then you start to work on, on on that and you start inputting it you know instrument by instrument by instrument that really opens up the workings of a composer to me you know when when i was uh, 20 i did a lot of copying uh, uh, as a as a music copyist and in those days it was um handwritten everything was handwritten i had a pretty good hand so i worked for a number of big copyists um when i was 20 21 or so to earn enough money uh, so that i could then move to birmingham and start my job at the bbc um and i did a lot of film scores and i did a lot of tv series um things like the indiana jones chronicles and i did a lot of jerry goldsmith stuff but what was brilliant about it as a student was this this is you get the orchestrator's score like raw there it is it's fresh off the page and now you're writing out each part of course and it's such a brilliant way of learning music and learning how a composer does it and how an orchestrator does it how a composer creates something and how an orchestrator then expands that if that's how they did it um, you know which instruments work best with what which instruments and and how they get the sounds they that they want mm. that was absolutely fascinating to do so this is what what i was doing with with john barry scores now john barry scores actually the really amazing thing about john barry scores that i think is is revealed hopefully in the cd is the simplicity of it mm. you know actually almost everything john does is incredibly sophisticated actually but it's also beautifully simple the the melody lines tend not to be harmonized they're, they're just one melody line and then you've got these beautiful big block chords underneath that um particularly in his later scores you know mostly trombones and strings and then you've got harp that's doing an arpeggio of that chord uh, which is doubled on the cellos and so on and so forth you, you start to learn these 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 styles that that, that john did and they're very simple really effective and it's music that really goes straight to the heart. It's, it's something about, it's a bit like Morricone. They had, this, they had this ability to be able to cut through all the bull and go straight through <laughs> to, to your heart and say, this, you know, this is the music that I want to, to, to give you. And it, it, that's why I think it speaks so well to, to people, to, to a lot of people. They love, it. They love John Barry's big open long melodies you know the beautiful chord sequences i mean personally i prefer his action music from the 60s uh, i think it was fresher and more exciting and it felt new and he was doing something new you know particularly in the early bond movies of course but in in others as well um and i personally i think he sort of he he, he sort of settled into a bit of a style from about 1985 onwards when he did out of africa and there was that kind of style that then he settled into and was doing on movies that would seem inappropriate for that and he'd get thrown off them which was such a shame but hmm. um yeah so there's that style so a lot of that is in the is on the cd i mean i i i actually sat down at, talking of john barry i sat down at the piano recently and um i just started playing what was basically a because um, the chords are very similar it turned out to be a mashup of music by i was just playing it it was coming to my head and I was playing the, the melody and the chords underneath. It was a mashup of um, a song by the Sherman brothers 
called Lovely Lonely Man from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Then mm. I did the You Only Live Twice theme by John Barry. And I think one thing I tried to slip in there was one of Charlie Chaplin's compositions from his score to The Kid. Mm-hmm. And because the chord structure is very similar. And of course, the connections between all of these is that John Barry scored the Bond films. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, though he didn't work on that, was made by the James Bond producers, Saltzman and Broccoli. And, well, it was written by Ian Fleming, of course. Oh, yes, of course. I forgot about that. And um, the other connection, John Barry to Chaplin, is that John Barry scored the Richard Attenborough biopic about Chaplin's life. Mm-hmm. Yes, of course. And, yeah, and he, I quite like that. Quite like that score. There's a little quirkiness to that to that score, but again, another a beautiful um, slow melody. One one of the things you realise about about a lot of John's John Barry's music is it's all slow. Even his fast music is slow. I've been working on Dances with Wolves, yeah. and even his slow, even his fast music is in fact uh, a slow across the bar. If you know what I mean, it's got it can sound fast, but actually isn't really. Um, it's it's an interesting one. It's an interesting effect that he gets. But he he was obviously in love with that sort of big broad brush brushstroke, with the with the with the big melody over the top that um, that thing that won him those Oscars in in later years, Dances with Wars and Out of Africa. Um, and why not? Uh, but it's incredibly popular music, of course, and it's I mean, been it's been lovely to work on. It's it. I think it's going to be a really nice album. Actually. Well, the Bond films. Um... Two Bond scores uh, by his, um, two Bond scores that John Barry did, You Only Live Twice and Goldfinger. I mean, they have examples of that. The bit where, um, in Goldfinger, where towards the end, where Bond is handcuffed to this atomic bomb at Fort Fort Knox and he has to try and disarm it. Mm. And it's a race against time. But if you you just concentrate on the music, it isn't very fast. It's just ba-dum. Bum, yeah. ba-dum, yeah. bum. And and in, in you only live twice, of course, the bit with the, the capsule in space queue mm. at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And because you've got a you've got a guy who's floating in space, and they thought, oh, the, oh no, we must get out of the way. We must do something. But then of course the thing swallows up the spacecraft. Mm. Yeah, the capsule in space for me, the brilliance of that is the orchestration. How he how he handles the instruments in that fantastic. It's pure him. Couldn't be anybody else. I, uh, Diamonds are, are forever is my favourite, um, but but Bond score of, of John Barry's. I love I love that score. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, Diamonds are forever. That has a somewhat minimalist bit in it, which does though mean a lot to the film when Bond is is running away. Uh, he's he's on one of those little motorbike things and you get yeah. the strings the xylophone and maybe the flute goes da 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 but they're all playing mm-hmm. in, there's no chords it's all the same notes they're just playing oct- in octave unison going da 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 but what's interesting, what's interesting about the music though, and I've discovered this a lot, is that it doesn't always work well in performance. Hmm. It's incredibly effective in the movie, but it can be quite repetitive. The way he does it, the way he builds it up is, is fantastic in the film, but it doesn't always work, I don't think, as a, as a pure listening experience um, uh, on stage. It's been interesting. I've done a number of John Barry concerts over the years, 
And it's been interesting to to discover that actually that uh, not all sometimes you need to arrange it to make it more to work better as a concert piece. I mean, obviously it wasn't written as a concert piece. That's fair enough. And of course, John did did a few concerts um, near near the end of his life uh, where he did exactly that and put some some suites together so that they were they worked better musically um, in performance. Uh, and those are the ones that we're doing. We the what we tried to do with this album is to do everything as authentic as possible. So mm. it, it's always his arrangements, um, unless they, they're not available and someone else did them anyway. Mm. Uh, they're not always his arrangements, even when you think they are his arrangements, of course, they, he, he did have people that would do, would do stuff. So, mm. um, but it's great. Yeah. Good music. And uh, looking forward to, to that being out. Mm. And um, now to, cause we're a bit pressed for time to um, this quick, there's a, I guess you can call this a, a two pronged question. First of all, what is your favorite contemporary film composer? And then what will be your favorite film composer of yesteryear? Hmm. Well, I mean, there's a bit of a crossover on those two, I think, but uh, I think, you know, John Williams is always going to be hmm. up there because he's just, an extraordinary master of music. I mean, you know, he can do anything, but his music always speaks to me. I think he's a great artist and he's a great person. He's a lovely man. He's always been very kind to me. Uh, we've done a lot of interviews together over the years, uh, filmed and, and audio. And so I'm always gonna have, you know, a particular <laughs> um, affection and uh, connection with, with his music, like millions of other people all, over, all around the world. Um, at the moment, I mean, the people that really excite me at the moment, actually, are people like Nicholas Brattel. I think he's a fantastic composer. I mean, Succession is on the TV at the moment. He did music for that, which is brilliant. Um, but I love his film scores. I, I think he's he's doing stuff that sort of sounds traditional and modern all at the same time. I think he's got a real talent. He knows his way around that orchestra. He works with some really good people like Matt Dunkley. Um, and there's always something interesting. Everything I've heard of his has something interesting in it, which you really, really can't say with a lot of composers that are working at the moment. I do worry about the, the way in which film music is going. And it's not always uh, the composer's fault, of course, it's often just the context in which they work and the direct, what the directors want, what the producers want and all the rest of it and trends. But uh, I think Brattel is doing something within that space that is very interesting and uh, always imaginative. So I'm always eager to hear what he's doing. I love I love Desplat um, when he's mm. on form. I think he's absolutely brilliant. I, Grand Budapest Hotel is a masterpiece. Yeah, uh, and I think the music in that is brilliant. And it's really hard to make music sound funny. And I think he he does it. I think he he has a great firm tongue in cheek in that score. Um, who else is that? I mean, I you know people like John Powell. I I've always loved and Harry Gregson Williams. Those guys, you know, um, they're always always producing. Um, high quality music uh, for for everything. My, one of my all time favorites is Elliot Goldenthal. Uh, he doesn't do anything like as much film music as I really want him to. But some of his scores, I think, are absolutely extraordinary. I mean, the music for Batman Forever, which is not recent at all. I mean, it's nearly thirty years now. Um, he is, I think, one of the greatest scores for one of the worst movies ever. Um, he absolutely throws the kitchen sink at it, and it's brilliantly recorded as well on the soundtrack, um, he's a tremendous composer. I mean, he, he won his Oscar for Frida, which I think is actually quite a, 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 a sort of low key score, really. beautifully done, but a low key score. But he, he of course 
does a lot of uh, the music for his partner Julie Tamor's um, productions, whether they be on stage or on on screen. Uh, but he's a brilliant composer. I I love Elliot's music. I think he's 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 the real deal. I think he's a genius. Mm. There's all there's also uh, Michael Giacchino who did yep. Up and Ratatouille. Yeah, I love Michael's stuff. I mean, again, he's 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 a student of movies. You know, he 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 can. There's a really good reason why he's so effective in like old franchises that he's now done, like Planet of the Apes, like Star Trek and Star Wars, is that um, he really knows that stuff. He, do he doesn't just know the music of those movies. He knows everything about those movies. In his house, it's an amazing place, his house. It's full of stuff. It's full of figures, of um, collectibles. And um, it's, it's amazing what he's got in there. And I'm sure it's worth a fortune. But he's a he's he's a proper geek, hmm. a proper film geek, and I think you can hear. I mean that uh, in the best possible way, by the way, because uh, I think I think you can hear it in in so much of his scores that he he understands language and the history of what he is producing, of what he's working on. Uh, I mean, it, funny enough, this brings us back to John Barry, you know, because John Barry did the music for for The Incredibles, but it it which of course is is a movie that's inspired by those kind of 1960s spy movie type things of which John was so much a part, but the music he put in sounded like out of Africa and they thought he was joking and they didn't want to use it. So they got Giacchino in to do it and the rest is history. You know, that, cause what Giacchino could do of course was make it sound like it was influenced by John Barry's scores from the sixties instead of actually just being John Barry. And that's the brilliance of it. So he could draw on all of that stuff because he knows those movies inside out uh, and make it into something fresh and new. It's interesting because, I mean, John Barry, I think there was a story I heard. John Barry was asked um, in the 80s to do, um, to write the music for the right stuff. And instead, Bill Conti ended up doing it because, because John Barry, I, I think John Barry looked at the film and just didn't know what to do. Hmm. And Bill Conti was, I can, I although I could, I could just hear John Barry working well with it, but for some reason it just didn't work out for him. And Bill Conti was brought in. Bill Conti, of course, did one Bond film for your eyes only. And there are hints of John Barry in there, probably because he wanted just to pay tribute to, to John Barry, who was, I, I get, I imagine he admired him a lot. But also, if I'm right, the Right Stuff score certainly got nominated for an Oscar, and I think it won the Oscar for Best Score. Yeah. And a, not much of the score is original. Some of it actually... Some of it, Bill Conti or whoever the music editor was, spliced in um, recordings of um, of like the Hallelujah Chorus or Holst's The Planets. And they even have a piece by Henry Mancini in there mm -hmm. when uh, John Glenn is orbiting around the Earth. And um, but the, the the score is a very memorable one, and of course uh, it got awards. Mm -hmm. Another one, um, I mean, the score that the scores I grew I got to know that I grew up with and got to know. The first one was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, 
I wasn't sure about that one for a start because for some reason I thought that wasn't a film score. But now I've looked back on it and I thought, yes, that was the that was the first one. The second one was The Great Escape. Mm-hmm. I think there were some others in between, but another one that has really stuck with me. And I and I, I you won't believe this. I listen to it every single day well, almost every single day. And that is John Addison's score for A Bridge Too Far. Mm-hmm. And so that, that really sticks. I, me and dad were, we had these CDs of film music. I, I actually, when I was little, I bought a CD for my dad for Father's Day and we ended up listening to it in the car and it consisted of film themes, TV themes, first track on there, Great Escape, second track on there, Star Wars, third track on there, Indiana Jones, fourth or fifth track on there, Superman. Eventually you get to like track 10 or 11, James Bond theme, track 12, the dad's army theme. <laughs> yeah. So lots of great stuff on there. Well, did, you mentioned did, the, you mentioned the great escape. I should mention that uh, yeah. I did the great escape with live orchestra. We premiered it with the BBC concert orchestra with Peter Bernstein, who's Elmer's son conducting it. Uh, that was uh, September or, or it might be in October, 2019. It was about four weeks after my twins were born. It was quite a, a period of time. Um, but uh, we're doing it again um, with oh, yeah. the with the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra. Yes! Oh uh, God, in, I need to, I need to come and see that. You do, you do. That's in July. So uh, there you go. Uh, and uh, see, that's a, such a great score. But the other th- really interesting about that score, and working on it is because uh, I orchestrated that one. Hmm. Um, uh, although when I say I orchestrated it, I orchestrated it from the orchestrator's short score because what we had was the short score that Elmer used to conduct the sessions mm. but it's incredible incredibly detailed every note has a pretty much has a has a uh, an instrument assigned to it or if it's a chord at the bottom it just says strings but you you know how that how he scores it so I had to expand it all into a full score because we didn't one didn't exist um, but what was amazing to discover was that everything Elmer wrote for that score is in the movie in the right order in almost exactly well in fact exactly how it was written except in a few cases where they obviously they, they extended a scene maybe just by a few shots and they just needed to repeat some you know it might just be a, an Austin, ostinato figure at the end just repeat it a few times but that's basically it everything that he wrote is as it as it was written in the movie now that never ever happens now ever so that was an amazing uh, education to to go through that score and see what uh, see what Elmer did with it because everyone knows the theme of course we all, everyone knows the great escape theme but what about all the other music in it and it is tremendous music yeah. really 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 exciting i i cuz i i um the, the the version i listened to on the cd before i saw the film because that's that's what made me that's what led to my dad getting the dvd and making me watch it um the it was a suite that the BBC concert orchestra played, and I think this is according to my dad. I I I I don't know where where it is. Um, there's a I think one of the players plays a bum note, but anyway, it's a suite that the BBC concert orchestra played, and um, it included the main theme. It, it included the motorcycle chase and yeah. one or two other things in there. And then I um, watched the film, 
the film started with the um, the film started with uh, the, um, the 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 march, and then because I was expecting to I was expecting it to end with the bum 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 bum. It didn't. It just as you see the trucks pulling up at Stalag Love Three, you get the dum 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 and it just mm-hmm. fades out. That's right. And then, of course, you get all the other stuff. The bit when they're trying to escape, they jump into the trucks, and and I just I kept there was some some cues at first because it took time for me to absorb them all. I think it took like a few viewings of the film for me to properly memorize them. Uh, the the bit this cue on first viewing that stuck with me was bit bar the title music was the bit where James Garner and Donald Pleasance escape in a plane mm-hmm. and they fly over Neuchwanstein mm-hmm. and you get that just before disaster strikes and they crash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's loads of that though. I mean, my favourite cue is actually, I mean, it's alluded to earlier in the movie, but it's right near the end when Steve McQueen returns to the, to the camp and uh, he's sort of walking back towards the isolation unit and um, he gets thrown his um, mitt, his baseball mitt and his ball. And uh, Elmer hits that moment with the big chords. And it's just a master. That whole cue is a masterclass in building, uh, building up to a particular moment and how to hit it with, with great music. It's, it, it, the whole film really is a masterclass in film music writing. It was a privilege to work on it. And I actually, I can't wait to do it again live because mm. audiences, they loved it at the, at the premiere. And I, I've been itching to do it again. But of course we had this pandemic in the middle, so mm. no one's been able to do anything. I can't wait to come to Liverpool and uh, hopefully see it. Mm. Um, who's um, who's going to be conducting uh, that'll be Dirk Brosse, who's oh. a very, very old friend of mine who's done a lot of things. I've just been at the work presenting the World Soundtrack Awards in Belgium yeah, with, with him uh, conducting. He's a wonderful, wonderful film, film composer as well as conductor. And uh, so he's doing that. That's I'm, I'm so pleased he's doing that. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, of course. I, I saw the things you were doing on. Uh, Facebook about that you and uh, Daniel Pemberton and mm-hmm. uh, Nanita Desi. Nanita Desi, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, and um, Daniel Pemberton, I think, is one composer who's he's working with uh, Aaron Sorkin yep. at the moment on this film, or is it a series about Lucille Ball? He's just done a Kim? movie. He's just done a movie with with uh, with him. Uh, I mean, he did he did his first movie as well. They seem to have got together now, which is great. I mean, actually, he's another one. Dan's another one, I think, is always doing something interesting, always looking for new sounds, really throwing stuff at, at, at films in, in a really, really interesting way. I think he's a brilliant, another brilliant composer. Yeah. And another composer, I think, um, who uh, another composer from this country who's done an awful lot who I should probably mention is George Fenton, mm-hmm. um, who's done, he's done loads. He, he's done both telly, he's done feature films. He did the Newsnight theme. And um, well, various... and the rest. I mean, he, he, he used to do, he used to have all of the BBC yeah. news programmes. 
George, George is the first film composer I ever ever met. Uh, oh. First film composer I ever interviewed. He used to have a studio in Wigmore Street, which uh, I went to. This is early nineties, and uh, we've been friends ever since. And he, he, uh, I, I, he's another one. He's so versatile in what he can do. He, you know, he he dominated television for so long. I mean, brilliant themes like Bergerac as well as all the David Attenborough stuff. And then, of course, we, his first big film break was Gandhi with the other Attenborough, Richard Attenborough. Mm. Um, and he did all, all of all of Richard's, or a lot of Richard's movies. Um, and uh, yeah, he's, a, he's a, another one of those amazing talents who can sort of do anything. Um, you know, start, he was a real protege of, of Carl Davis, you know, when Carl was doing doing music for theater and George was an actor. He was a child actor yeah. in, in a lot of Alan Bennett's stuff. Uh, and, and of course, George has now done the music for a lot of Alan Bennett's uh, films as well, as well as yeah. his TV series and, and plays as well. So George is, a, George is an extremely intelligent composer, mm. by which I mean, he, he, t- he, he's a serious composer in the sense that he, he always, I think, approaches everything with his brain rather than just his um emotions if you know what i mean he 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 works things out he i i think it's that's why i think his music can often be so rewarding um i mm. yeah he's a he's a very he's what known as one of the nicest people in the whole industry oh really there aren't, there aren't a huge number of them uh <laughs> so uh he's extremely nice chap and uh yeah brilliant composer and uh, uh, that's this whole thing about the way he approaches a film composition. That's probably he, his because of his experience as an actor. Um, if yeah, I'm a bit right. of that, bit of that maybe. And yeah. uh, so, but again, George, as I as I mentioned very early on, like with uh, Richard Rodney Bennett, John Addison, and Barry Gray and Walter Scharf, he has. He can he can nail he nails things in a way he nails particular th- things with his music that other composers can't. He uses a particular chord structure. The bit in Blue Planet where you see the way the blue whale's tail lift up out of the water. I'm not sure if that's in slow motion or if that's the actual speed, but the the chord that chord that. it just keeps going up and up and up and then eventually it all comes down whilst you've got this stuff that's lower down underneath you get this solo trumpet play that top note that and and he he, my god it's just (laughs) mind-blowing yeah i mean he's a real um innovator in in that respect with the with the natural history documentaries, of course, and with life on earth, he almost in- invented a language, a, a musical language for that kind of program, which I think pretty much everybody has copied ever since. Um, Cause he was right there at the, at the beginning of it really. Mm. And uh, yeah, I, I know he used to love working on Attenborough stuff. Life on loved- earth, life on earth was, was actually done by a guy called Edward Williams. And I, again, that was another album but I didn't have the whole album, but I downloaded some tracks to listen on the school, to listen to on the school bus. And because it, it just really boggled the mind because mm-hmm. it reminded me in part, 
in parts it reminded me of the Oliver Postgate programs, the clangers and either the engine and whatnot, <laughs> the use of woodwind and the use of harp. But there were other things in there that I couldn't that I couldn't put my finger on until I did the research, like what I did with Barry Gray. Mm. Um, and that was because Edward Williams was an early, was a, a pioneer of using, of combining synthesizers with an orchestra. Mm. I think I might have meant Trials of Life. I can't, I can't actually remember which yeah. one it was. Trials of Life, Trials one, of but... Trials of Life. He did a few, he did a few life programs. He did Trials mm. of Life. Uh, life in the freezer both of them were yeah, yeah. all done like electronically but they do sound like they sound as if they could be scored for orchestra <laughs> and um and so so you get some really good stuff with those but then of course when he did blue planet he had come back from hollywood and did uh, numerous things there uh he had, he was given the bbc concert orchestra the, the first music I remember of his was The Jewel in the Crown. When that was out, that was a big deal, that programme. And I remember watching it with my parents because I was about 12 or something at the time. There's a big theme on that. That was his Indian year because that or Indian period because he'd he done Gandhi and then, <coughs> and then he did uh, Jewel in the Crown. It was, but it's a, that's a big uh, theme that, and uh, we used to sing along to it uh, every night when we, when we watched it. That, I think that's the first... Or it, it might have been Bergerac, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I can't remember back that far. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he's a great composer. Uh, are there any films that I'm not sure if you will do that, you, that you're that you just aching to do live in the future? Again, it's a question of budget and if people, will, if people want to come and see them. Hmm. Well, I, I wanted to do Total Recall, uh, and we were ready to do it. Um, studio uh, agreed and everybody was ready uh, because it was going to be the anniversary of the of it as well in 2020 30 years so uh, we were ready to do it and then of course the pandemic happened and everything just fell away so that was a shame and um, whether we'll get that back up again I don't know the thing is it, I mean it is an astonishing score by Jerry Goldsmith but as a movie it's 1990 the effects I mean it's Paul Verhoeven is you know, a fantastic film but it's it, it's definitely aged uh so i'm not sure whether that would be a big seller if somebody came along gave me all the money to do it great let's do it uh that would definitely be a dream project for me um i have to say there's a couple i'm i am working on right now that are ones that i'm really really excited about i just can't talk about them because mm -hmm. i'm not allowed to until they're properly um signed off you know uh but they're going to be really exciting I'm, I'm, and completely different by the way hmm. uh, one of them is a mark shaman project but uh, another one is 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 very very different a very different composer with a very popular movie um but i'm i'm always looking for the slightly different parts of the repertoire the little corners uh you know i'm i'm not going to be able to compete with the big companies like disney that do all these shows as well so I'm not going to be doing the Star Warses of this world. Uh, I'm looking for the for the other place, uh, other bits of the repertoire that might be of interest uh, that we can create an audience for. Um, that's the way I've I've been trying to look at it anyway. Uh, but it's been difficult because you know the last eighteen months we haven't been able to do anything, uh, and we're still you know not absolutely certain how you know confidence we have of, of audiences coming in. I think people are feeling a bit better about. It. So there's that, but I'm also moving, you know, moving away from that format as well, and looking at uh, different kinds of formats of mm. presenting music. And you know, to, uh, uh, 
just uh, the summer before the pandemic hit, I did a big show uh, about which was based on Downton Abbey, uh, where we we did a lot of clips. It was a kind of highlights night of, of for fans of Downton Abbey with with the music played live. John Lund's music played live with John Lund um, and Alistair King conducting, and that was fabulous. And we did that at the uh, stately home that Downton is filmed at. Did that as a big outdoor concert. We've also done it in in Lucerne as well, a few other places that's probably unlikely to come back again but that's the kind of format that i quite enjoy playing mm. with as well um so that was a television series obviously a globally successful one but there are there are ideas like that around as well uh, to do but the the to be honest with you charlie i think the the um the, it's getting a crowded market a lot of people are doing this stuff because it's been successful and my worry about it is i i've always wanted it, uh, the these events to be special one has to remember that most people only go to one or two things at a concert hall in a year. Hmm. Uh, people are not going every week. They're choosing very carefully what it is they go to see. If that's the case, I want it to be special. My worry is that this market is so saturated now that they've just become the norm and people just go because it's a thing. And that's the way it's presented. I've never really wanted to do that. Uh, it's, it's why I'm not rich. Hmm. Uh, I, wanted, I want to do something that makes people feel special. And that they've actually um, paid paid for this and, and got something really special out of it by, by going home and thinking, wow, that was amazing. I worry that that's not really happening as much anymore because it's become so so normal a way of presenting film scores. So that's why I'm looking for different things, different ways of presenting it to make it interesting, fun and exciting for, for an audience. Yeah, ways of, so I guess, doing it in a sort of immersive way and of course, um, I'm not sure, maybe reimagining stuff. And of course, this John Barry thing you're doing might lead to more recording projects. Maybe, we'll see. I mean, I, I, you know, it's not the most important part of my life, but uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's nice, always nice to do recording projects and we'll see how this one flies. We have got another one planned, um, mm. but uh, yeah, we'll see how this one goes first and see what the audience uh, thinks about, about John Barry and then we can move along from there. It's well, you know I'm, I'm interested in everything really, hmm. uh, but I also have to put food on the table. <laughs> well, um, well, Tommy, um, that's that wraps up this interview, and it wraps up this interview, and thus this edition of the Film Score Junkie podcast. Thank you very much for giving up your time to be interviewed, Tommy. Pleasure. Thank you for having me, John. And uh, to everyone out there. Do tune in again whenever I, I, whenever I produce uh, an, another edition of the Film Score Junkie podcast. So thank you very much. And thank you very much for being interviewed. For, for, thank you very much for allowing me to interview you, Tommy. Thank you very much. Thank you.